Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Something a little bit different for you this week. Let me explain the background to this and how it came about. One of the things I have to do, one of the great privileges I have here at All Saints is to teach a Bible and theology class every week to uh, children and young people at All Saints aged between 7th and 12th grades. This actually coincides with the ministry of the Oaks Tutorials, which is a Christian school that meets uh, here in our premises here at All Saints. Uh, and I've been encouraging the young people uh, to be interactive in uh, the classes. There are three classes, actually, 7th and 8th, 9th and 10th, 11th and 12th. And uh, recognising that the classes are getting a little bigger, I encourage the students, if they have particular questions they want to ask, just to email me those questions, and then we could pick them up in class and make sure that we included them in the discussion as appropriate. So these classes have been going really well. Um, the students have really stepped up. They were great last year. They're even better this year. Uh, and um, But perhaps predictably, what's happened is that um, the number of questions that I'm getting emailed has increased. I don't know whether this is going to continue, but uh, a number of questions have come in. Uh, and one in particular came in, which doesn't really have anything much to do with any of the courses that I'm currently teaching, but it's nonetheless important. I'm teaching courses on Ten Commandments, an overview of systematic theology and Christian ethics. But one of the students asked a question about baptism, and specifically paedo-baptism, and the differences between uh, paedo-baptists and baptists on that topic. And so I thought, well, how do we put this into the, uh, the course? It didn't seem to me obvious uh, how we could do so. And then it occurred to me that, hold on, there's another teacher here at the school, Mr. Tyler Bauer, who um, has been here for a couple of years teaching at the Oaks Tutorials. And he's a, a Baptist. He's, he describes his position as particular Baptist. And therefore, I thought for a number of reasons, it might be helpful for me to sit down with him and have a conversation uh, with any of the students uh, in the older age range and any of their parents who are interested uh, present to listen in. And I'm hoping to do a number of things by this. I'm hoping first to clarify some confusion that may exist on both sides of this particular aisle about what uh, Baptists and Paedobaptists believe. I'm also trying, secondly, to present something of a model for theological debate and discussion. Uh, I'm trying to learn myself again, thirdly, because it turns out that Mr. Bauer's uh, view of uh, baptism is far more theologically rich and nuanced and uh, historically informed and biblically rooted than uh, many uh, Baptists who I've had the privilege of talking with who've um, thought about the issue, but not to the depth that he has. And um, we get on really well and... Um, uh, it just seemed like a, an opportunity too good to miss. So we actually had our first conversation today. It lasted for just under half an hour or so, and we recorded it, uh, and I thought you might like to listen to it. So in a moment or two, the recording will start. You will readily perceive that we didn't get all the way through the discussion. Uh, there are many questions yet unanswered. And so what we're going to do, Lord willing, in a future uh, session, uh, maybe three weeks' time or something, we'll have some questions for each other just to push back and clarify some of the issues. And then we may turn questions over for uh, students uh, or even parents to ask anything if they're able to come. Uh, and again, the aim in all this is mutual understanding, uh, growth in uh, theological clarity and biblical uh, depth or understanding of the scriptures, uh, learning to uh, love one, and each one another and to model uh, the right way of disagreeing, and maybe even to come to some kind of agreement on matters where we thought we were um, uh, in disagreement, and maybe even, who knows, we may change some minds in the process, we'll see. Um, but uh, with all that said, um, I hope you enjoy the next half hour or so. This is Mr. Tyler Bauer and myself having a, the first of a number of conversations about 
baptism and specifically infant baptism and a bunch of related topics. Enjoy the rest of the recording. Well, it's nice to see you all. We've got a few more people uh, wandering in through the door, so um, I'll uh, do a very brief introduction before we kick off. Um, you all know Mr. Bauer, am I correct? Mrs. Uh, Clackhorn, you might not do. Um, Mr. Bauer, why don't you just introduce yourself briefly, yeah. just for the one or two folks who don't know me. not been talked by you. Hi, I'm Tyler Bauer. I've been teaching in the Oaks for a couple of years. Uh, I'm a PhD student at Southwestern Seminary. I teach philosophy and humanities and that kind of stuff here. Uh, I've been through, I've done some philosophy and some theology and some apologetics work. Uh, and I guess my part in all this is that I'm the Baptist. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, in a minute we'll pray, but just a bit of background first. So what happened was... Um, I've been encouraging all the students, and I think all of you are students in my Bible and theology classes, yeah. Um, I've been encouraging you to send in questions by email, um, as well as uh, asking questions during the class for discussion and so on. And um, come in, come in, have a seat. Um, and one of the effects of that, of course, is that whatever it is you happen to be thinking about at any particular time during the week, you go, oh, okay, I can just ask Pastor Jeffrey, which of course is true. It doesn't necessarily mean that Pastor Jeffrey can answer. But uh, and on this occasion, he definitely couldn't answer because um, a question came into the effect of, so explain this whole baptism of infants, Presbyterians and Baptists thing. And I thought, rather than me try and represent the various different Baptist perspectives that I'm aware of, I thought, why don't I ask my good friend, Mr. Bauer, if he'd be willing to sit down with me and um, talk about this. So yeah. um, I want to pray. I'm going to then summarize as briefly as I can, like in a sentence, what is it that this man thinks and what is it that I think. And then I'm just going to invite you, um, Mr. Bouch, to talk as long as you want, just to flesh out what it is that uh, you believe about this subject, especially the baptism of infants, but anything else that's related to that. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, Perhaps I'll do the same, and then we can bounce off each other. And if we run out of time, which we will, because we're not going to sort this out in 25 minutes, um, then we can um, come back another week and do this. We've had 400 again. years, I mean. We should be getting there by now. Maybe this will be the moment, right? When we... <laughs> All right, uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then you go ahead. First of all, Father, we're grateful to you uh, for one another. Um, I'm thankful to you for my friend Tyler Bauer and for our fellowship in Christ. Thank you for these students and parents who are here. And we ask, Father, that you nurture and nourish and teach and instruct us today as we're thinking about this topic. We thank you that um, you are so patient with us in the midst of all of our confusions. And we thank you that your word contains the kinds of uh, commands and wisdom that it does about how best to handle those differences of opinion that inevitably arise between us from time to time. Please would you work in us by your spirit, not just today, but in months and years to come that we may exemplify in our lives those principles and at the same time grow closer to the unity of mind for which Jesus prayed as we seek to exemplify the unity of spirit which he's given us and we pray in Jesus name. Amen. So the briefest of possible introductions for myself I hold a view which sometimes called paid a baptism or a covenant baptism I think it's right to baptize the children of believers um, my perspective on that is a little different from some paedobaptists in that I also think that we ought to give the Lord's Supper to the children of believers. That's the simplest version I can give. This man is a Baptist. 
But not any old Baptist. No. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, and I, I agree with the, the Pado Baptist logic mm-hmm. that, uh, that those who have been baptized should take the Lord's Supper. Uh, where a major part where we draw a dividing line is on who should be baptized. Uh, and I think, probably because a lot of you are from non-credo Baptist backgrounds, you hear the term Baptist, and you probably think it's one thing, um, which is a, is a problem on Baptist's part because we don't define our terms very well, and we also tend to talk about the subject less, uh, which is foolish. Uh, in the email, you noted... Uh, I hold what is called the particular Baptist position. Usually today you'll hear the term Reformed Baptist, but that term's anachronistic. Um, it would have been silly to call Baptists Reformed in the 1700s. Uh, so in that period of time, Baptists of my persuasion referred to themselves as being particular because they viewed the atonement of Christ as being particular the same way that the Presbyterians and the Dutch Reformed did. Uh, So we agreed on that point. That's contrasted with general Baptists who were Arminian or general in their view of the atonement. And so because of that, they have a different view as to what baptism does for believers. And post-1800s, especially coming in from the 1950s, we have a new category that are dispensational Baptists who disagree. They don't, most of them don't know this, (laughs) but they disagree with the two earlier camps uh, and so that third category is the one that most people are probably familiar with when you hear the term Baptist. Uh, it's also the smallest category, but it's the most vocal. Uh, so that third category of dispensational Baptists hold that the covenant uh, of the Old Testament is done, and a new thing has been brought in that is entirely separate from the Old Testament. And so baptism and circumcision are related in no way whatsoever. They're two completely separate categories. Uh, The other two groups, general Baptists and particular Baptists, are looking for a continuity with the Old Testament covenant. Uh, But because we think the framing of the people of God has expanded, so has the sign and who who it's applied to. Uh, But we're looking at it as there is a continuous line still between Old Testament and New Testament covenant. Uh, it's just shifted, as opposed to dispensational Baptists who would say there is no continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're two different categories. So I'm not in that, that third camp. Uh, yeah. So let me just push you a little bit just to flesh out the sure. details. Um, uh, how does that sketch of your view of the covenants and the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament, how does that shape your view that while the children of believers receive covenant signs under the Old Covenant, they shouldn't under the New Covenant until they're older? Yeah. Uh, so my understanding and the way that, that, that I think it lines up, uh, in the New Testament, the covenant is almost entirely familial. Uh, And even someone on the outside of Israel, when they come into the covenant, they're being adopted into a familial structure. They're leaving family ties behind. 
uh, and adopting. They're, they're either marrying into or some way they're joining the covenant familially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the covenant is passed on automatically via, via reproduction. Uh, it doesn't, the, 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 the state of that person doesn't matter. Uh, in terms of their their cognitive belief per se, uh, they're part of the covenant because they've come into it. Uh, versus, I would say the New Testament. It seems to me that the way that 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 covenant is structured is that there is there is no one who is s- s- under the uh, there is no one who is in the covenant that is not also professing faith in the Lord. Right. Okay. So. That seems to me there's going to be quite a significant exegetical and theological claim at that point then. Sure. So um, point us to some texts or other theological considerations that would support that, that claim. Yeah. Uh, the, and I realize that there's, there's disagreement on, sure. on parsing this out already. Uh, the main one we're going to turn to are like texts in Jeremiah... Mm-hmm. Uh, that says I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to have to teach them anymore. Uh, they will. They will know me. They will all know me. Right. Uh, and the way that pretty much all Baptists are going to look at that and say, "Well, right there, we've got. They no longer have to be taught uh, the covenant because they're already in the covenant. I mean, clearly we have to be taught how to think properly and, and good theology and those kinds of things. Um, as opposed to in the old covenant, you have to teach them." the things uh, beforehand. They're not going to know on the front end, uh, so they have to be raised up into it versus the new covenant. They right, they okay. don't have to be taught it because by the time they get there, they already know. Right, gotcha. So when you sing um, uh, Jeremiah 31, um, no longer will a man teach his brother or a man his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. The point is there that in the old covenant you had a two-year-old who was a member of this covenant community. He, he had this relationship with God, but he had to be taught, know the Lord, yeah. post-reception of the covenant sign. Yes. Whereas nowadays, um, you get that before, you said on the front end, so that Jeremiah 31 is actually a reference in effect to um, the, the teaching that takes place within the church community. It, it's not going to involve raising a young person to come to appreciate the faith they've been baptized into, rather, because it says, no longer will a man teach his brother and a man his neighbor saying, know the Lord. It's going to be, well, you already know this kind of basic framework. You know the Lord. Um, therefore, by definition, you couldn't have, let's say, a two-year-old there who... who yeah. Need, right, I'm with you. So before I jump in and, and um, sketch my uh, the way that I'd view that... Um, the shape of redemptive history in, in contrast to, to what you're saying. Are there other things you'd want to throw in there which are significant um, supporting ideas, supporting texts, theological principles that you think are, are significant that fit with your view of baptism? Yeah. Um, so I think it's rather undisputed that there's no... like The, the, the reason why this is a problem is because it's not uh, explicit in the New Testament. There's no, like, uh, there's no clear claim to, hey, go baptize your children, or don't baptize your children. That's right, not laid right, out yeah. in so many words. Yeah, yeah. Um, we might find highly implicit commands, but there, I, I, I think it's uncontroversial to say that there are no explicit commands. Um, 
So that doesn't really help either of us. Right. Uh, but it's interesting you say that, just to, just to interject and in, in supporting what you're saying, because sometimes you've, I have Baptist friends, I was talking to a young man um, just recently, who said, yeah, basically in the book of Acts, there are no children mentioned being baptized. You know, and that was kind of as far as the, the discussion went. Yeah. Now maybe there's much more behind it in his mind than that. But it's interesting that that's not how they start and proceed. You've got yeah. much more structure behind what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, well, and they claim it's an argument from silence, so it doesn't help. Right. I mean, it, it supports both sides. Okay. So it doesn't, it doesn't help either of us. Um, so to me, I'll, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I would have to go digging around for texts because I can't remember numbers off the top of my head. Um, but there's often a, a, the ordering of things is repent and believe. Yes. Or they repented and believed. Uh, and I, I, well, I'm happy to admit that, it, it, that uh, paedo-baptists can easily incorporate that into their structure. Uh, but to me, because that it is so repetitively done, mm-hmm. that seems to give weight to, right. in the New Covenant, there's an ordering right. to repent uh, and believe and then, and then be baptized. Be, it has a kind and, of rhetorical force in the yeah. practice, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, and on top of that, uh, for example, I have no problem uh, with the, the dedicating of, of children to raise them up in the Lord. This is a, this is a longstanding particular Baptist view um, of, of dedicating our children to raise our children uh, in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. Uh, I have no problem with that. Right. Uh, there are some Baptists who treat their children as unbelievers until they've professed, and I just think that's foolish. Right. Uh, because I'm, I'm not going to teach them, I'm not going to not tell them the truth of the world. Uh, I'm going to raise this child up as though he lives in God's world, because he does. Uh, so I don't have a problem dedicating and saying, I'm going to raise this child as, as part of the faith, and I expect that the... I at least have the, the hopeful expectation right, right. Uh, that the, the Lord will bring him to confession. I actually have a child. You know, don't know. Um, so I'm thinking about this with my own son. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm, yeah I'm, just not, I'm not speaking hypothetically. I'm, I'm thinking about my own son. Uh, and so I, I, I am not worried about my son coming to faith. I have the hopeful expectation that the Lord will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not prepared to say he is a full covenant member until he has professed faith, and he has done so in a way that I think he is being genuine as opposed to just repeating the things that mom and dad want to hear. Okay. So let me try and, um, I think the phrase is steel man your position, and you tell me whether I got this right. Sure. So you're saying that, um, just from what you previously said, there is a kind of privileged place in God's providence for a child um, born into a, a covenant family under the new covenant. Sure. There is what you described as a, a hopeful expectation that this child will grow up to profess faith. But what you're seeing in Jeremiah 31 is specifically the claim that um, the teaching a person to know the Lord is going to be taking place before, not after, the application of the covenant sign. Yes. So you teach the two, three, four, five-year-old to know the Lord, and then when they do know in that rich biblical sense, then you anticipate 
faith, repentance, and baptism. And that's the kind of logic and the order you see again and again in the book of Acts. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me just sketch then um, how I would paint um, using most of the same brush strokes and most of the same actual paint, a slightly different picture. Yeah. Um, and then come back and we see if there's anything that you want to kind of probe to get deeper into it. Um, begin with, okay, well, let's begin with what covenant means. Covenant just means relationship. It's a particular kind of relationship in which the expectations, the, uh, sh the blessings that will accrue from it, um, the sanctions which will prevail for disregarding it are well defined. So we have a a relationship, but I have a covenant relationship with my wife because I've made formal promises. Um, there are specific and well-defined expectations upon both of us and very clear sanctions if I, uh, things that I'm not allowed to do. And, and the thing that makes a covenant a covenant is the clarity of those expectations, the fact that they're public, the fact that there are sanctions and blessings attached and so on and so forth. So we're in relationship with God, which is the same thing as saying we're in covenant with God. And the people of God have always been in relationship with God. And the character of that relationship develops through history. You could trace it back to Adam, but it's enough to trace it back to Abraham. Genesis 17, God explains to Abraham that this relationship will include, among its blessings, that I will be God to you and to your children after you. And in fact, uh, Genesis 17, 7 and 8 it's as though Abraham disappears from the picture. I will give to you and to your offspring the land of your sojournings, or the land of Canaan, to be an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, in the end of verse 8. Um, it's not that God doesn't care about Abraham, but the, the offspring and the promises to the offspring so fill the horizon that um, that's really what God focuses on as he's looking forward to their inheritance in Canaan. So that then is associated in Genesis 17 with the giving of the covenant sign to the boys. Maybe we'll come back to that boys versus boys and girls difference if you want to. Um, and indeed, the sign is spoken of as being so connected to the, the thing that it signifies that really you can't have one without the other. You certainly shouldn't expect to have the relationship and ignore the sign. And if you have the sign but don't have the relationship, uh, perils be upon you. Which is why Moses got into a lot of trouble yeah. generations later for not having circumcised his son. Okay, so that structure, it seems to me, continues throughout the development of that covenant relationship in the era of Moses, which is a new covenant in those days, a new administration of the Abrahamic covenant, David, possibly Nehemiah at the return from exile and so on. And the new covenant in Christ is the climax and fulfillment of all the previous covenants. And what's interesting to note is that when the New Testament describes the quality of the relationship that will be the heritage of the people of God in the new covenant age after the coming of Christ, it specifically mentions not just Abraham, but the promise to Abraham's children as one of the blessings that's carried forward. So it seems that that aspect of the relationship is preserved just as God is God to Abraham and his children, he's God to us and to our children. So two examples, Luke chapter 1, Mary's song, she specifically mentions um, you know, to Abraham and his children forever. And the, the most obvious one, Acts 2, end of the Pentecost sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost. All the people are struck to the heart. We've just crucified the Messiah. That's a bit of a mistake. Probably shouldn't have done that. Oh dear, 
brothers, what should we do? And of course, Peter says, well, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. He specifically says the promise is for you and for your children. Now, what's the promise? Well, the promise is a reference to two distinct but related realities. You and your children is an allusion to Genesis 17, 7 and 8, and to your children, God to you and to your children. It's that promise. And in the context of Acts 2, it's the promise of the Spirit, which according to the book of Galatians is the fulfillment of the gospel preached in advance to Abraham. So the gift of the Spirit, which has just been given to the church, is one way, in fact the way, um, experientially, in which the promise to Abraham is now fulfilled in the new covenant church. So um, Peter says, well, be repent and be baptized, all of you, and you will receive, da -da -da -da, for the promises for you and for your children. Whereupon... Um, riots do not ensue in the streets of Jerusalem when the first family bring their three-week-old baby to be baptised and are told, oh, no, 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 he, he has to grow up until he can make a profession of faith of his own. Which Calvin points out would certainly have happened because we know what happens in the early church when you start tinkering with sacraments, circumcision, particularly the privileges that people attach to that. Galatians is a witness yep. to that. Um, if, you'd, if the coming of Christ had meant a withholding of the sign, which is so connected with the covenant blessings that it's identified with it, practically speaking, in Genesis and Exodus, if it meant withholding the sign from those who formerly were recipients of it, you'd have had riots in the streets. So when you get household baptisms, I, I'd want to push back with against your... Um, there's no... It's an argument from silence. It doesn't weigh either way. I'd actually want to say, at least to some extent, the argument from silence, no children are mentioned, only really makes sense if children are included, because you can bet there would not have been silence if they'd been excluded. There'd have been riots. And, and that would well, be the claim I'd make. So um, that's what you get in Acts chapter 2. Just briefly, of course, what this means is I find myself, just as you find yourself... Um, wanting to go outside and have a quite quiet conversation with dispensational Baptists and other Baptists. I find myself wanting to go outside and have a rather loud conversation with lots of my Presbyterian friends who want to say, um, yeah, but hold on, you just produced an argument for inclusion of children at the covenant meals as well, to which I want to say, yes. And they want to say, no, 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 don't go doing that. And I'm saying, no, no, it seems to me that the inclusion of the children within the family of God um, receiving the sign of entry, receiving the sign of continual feeding, all these things go together. So I depart from most of my Presbyterian friends. And I agree with the logic on that. Right, and so that logically, we're actually in the same place, um, which might mean that one of us is not far from the kingdom. It's like, <laughs> right? um, uh, so um, yeah, that's how I'm going to uh, end up. So... Um, I think one of the things, there's lots of things we could pursue. One of the things we'd want to talk about is um, exegetical questions in relation to Jeremiah 31. So, we, so if we were going to do this at length, obviously that's one of the places I have to go. Because yeah. I can't claim to have responded to your position without actually dealing with the hard graft of that text. Sure. Um, and yeah, and we, we, wanna, we, yeah, and we clearly don't have uh, the... the the time space to, to break this out fully. Mm. Um, I think uh, in response, just so it, it sounds like I'm not being theologically deficient here, mm. um, and, and uh, I, I will grant that there might be good reason for this, but one, 
just so I'm not uh, coming out of the coming out of the dark here, most of my family is Presbyterian, so I'm not I'm not operating out of a, a base of absolute <laughs> no knowledge. Yeah. Um, I get made fun of at like family meals. Um, uh, so do I, but this is <laughs> for other reasons. I mean, yeah, sure. Um, but, but it is interesting to me uh, in the in the end of Peter's sermon. Uh, almost always, when I have this conversation, it's to you and your children. And yes. that last part is left off uh, to all who are right. far off. That almost right. is almost never mentioned. Now there may be good reason for that, but it's just interesting to me mm-hmm. that that's that's usually left out when this is presented. Well, uh, well, again, there may be good reason sure. for that. And all whom the Lord will call. And all so Lord I want to say absolutely, it's not just the heritage of these Jewish diaspora who've come here for the feast. Yeah, it's actually anybody who's far off, and that far off has a kind of technical term in first century. Uh, Jewish life, referring probably to um, Gentile believers or even other Gentiles, um, anyone whom the Lord God calls. Yeah, yeah. And I so. and I have no problem incorporating uh, the promises for you and your children. Yes, uh, that doesn't bother me. So how do you incorporate um, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and your receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children? That I think that's. When we're done with Jeremiah 31, I'd love to hear you on that. Maybe you want to say a word well, about it now. Well, just on that one, um, uh, repent and be baptized, uh, and you will be forgiven of your sins. That promise is for you and right. for your children and for all who are far off. Um, so I don't have a problem incorporating that, because to me, the, the, the way that I break that down is saying, if you repent and be baptized, right, right. Uh, the gospel is for you, and for your children, right, okay. like whoever, whoever is in this chain, um, this same promise of repent and be baptized is for you. So what I'd then have to do, and that's, that's a helpful clarification, because then what I need to do is to come back and say, okay, on what biblical grounds can we say that a child, an infant, has anything like repentance? Because repent and be baptized, etc., etc. And one place to go with that in future discussion would be, say, Psalm 22. Um, Texts, well, Psalm 22, 9 and 10 is a very good example, where David, speaking of his own experience as an unborn child, and then as a nursing infant, he says, um, uh, uh, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Uh, I trusted you at my mother's breasts. On you, I put the whole thing, on you I was cast. From my mother's I trust you from my mother's breast, from my, on you as I cast from my birth, um, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Now, mother's womb, then quote from Genesis 17, you have been my God. You I trusted at my mother's breasts. So he's breastfeeding, he's like five days old, whatever. And he doesn't hesitate to look back. It's not that he can remember having repented. It just seems to me that the normative expectation of how we should describe the life of this child who's within the community is to say, yeah, they're a believer. In the sense that they have the infant version of what grows into mature repentance and faith. So then the question is, okay, can we load onto that the metaphysical freight necessary to ground repent and be baptized in in Acts 2? Yeah. And I I mean, I think when it's just kind of, when it's those kinds of things, I think this is just where we're just going to take different answers to that right. question. Because yeah. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that's a lot of a lot of exegetical force to be laid on a poetic statement. Right. Uh, I'm guessing you're going to say no, that this is more of a prophetic poetic statement. And so Dave, we, can, we can lay 
exegetical mm. force on that. Well, I think I'd want to say, first, it's not the only text. Sure. And then, and then secondly, um, uh, no, two, two other things. So po poetry, I mean, you're not saying it's poetic, it doesn't really mean what it says. I know you're not saying that, but it's just worth clarifying. Neither of us is saying, oh, it's poetry, loose use of language, can't really rely on it. Right. What I want to press is the clear assumption that yeah. David seems to make. And the fact that it's in passing actually makes it an even stronger argument, because it's not like he has to explain and defend this crazy idea that he was a believer from the age of six hours. Old. Right. He just thinks that this is what everybody would have assumed about an Israelite infant who grows yeah. up to be faithful. Yeah, and I, I will admit that my position has to wrestle with this, mm -hmm. um, but because we also have a particular atonement, Right. Uh, I'm, I'm agreeing that the elect have been chosen before the foundations of the world. Right, right. So those, the, like the, it's. I don't think that there is a moment where a person's status changes upon their profession of faith. Like I don't become. I mean, yes, in one sense, I become saved when I profess, and in another sense, I don't. See, I'd love to interrogate that because I'm. I wasn't sure how exactly you're describing the relationship that a child has who hasn't yet been baptized with God, how that changes from when they're eight years old and haven't been baptized to when they're 12 years old and they have. And, and what, are you putting those in different categories? How are, you, how are you parsing that in theological terms? Say that again for me. So, I'm sorry. So you, you wanted to talk. I was wanting to make sure I got this right about you when I tried to steel man what you were saying. H how would you describe the relationship with God that an unbaptized eight-year-old has? compared to a baptized 12-year-old? That's one thing I'd love to explore. Okay. And maybe um, give us a brief answer now. I'm looking at Mrs. Brown. When do we need to finish? Because we've got classes, right? Um, one minute ago. Right. So yeah. give, give us an answer on that briefly. Yeah. And take as long as you want. But, um, yeah. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll let these students go and do some work rather than just chilling out. Yeah. Doing theology, um, which is what they actually all want to do all the time. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Uh, and an 8-year-old and 12-year-old is a little hard. Um, because I think the eight-year-old can understand it. An eight-year-old and five-year-old, I think, might even be uh, more clear-cut. So frame it in a way that you're happier with then. Yeah. Because they can't understand. Or I, I'll use a three-year-old. So, I, for example, I don't... I think that uh, you have a, a child who's three who's elect. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they're grasping what, is, what, what their life is. Mm -hmm. Uh, the complexities uh, of of what it even means to say something like "I love I love Jesus" or what have you. I don't think they really understand entirely what they're getting at when they do that. Yeah. Uh, an eight-year-old can. I would have no problem baptizing an eight-year-old. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, maybe even a six or seven-year-old. Maybe five. Uh, probably not five. <laughs> We're getting close there. <laughs> it's getting lower. Um, uh, their relationship, I think, comes in like. My son, right now, yeah. doesn't really have a concept of dad that loves him. I mean, he kind of knows that there's a... He's starting to recognize a particular human mm. who does things. Mm. Um, uh, and he recognizes this one as opposed to the other ones who show up. But I don't yes. think he understands. But I know very well that I love him. Right. Uh, and so I have no problem seeing that relationship from God to that, that hypothetical three-year-old. Mm. Okay. Um, but I don't think that three-year-old understands the other the other direction. Right. Uh, but uh, as the child gets older, the difference between an elect 
eight-year-old who hasn't been baptized, I think, and the 12-year-old who has is the 12-year-old understands it better, and right, he's right. been baptized and what have you, and I think the eight-year-old just should have been baptized already. Right, yeah. Okay, uh, okay so listen, I'm conscious we're, we're occupying this room, and those young people out there are smiling at us wanting to come in. Yeah, because so they're, they're I, my class. I've got a whole bunch of questions, <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you. That's okay. Can we do this again? But we can do it yeah. again. We'll, we'll do some more. We will let you know when we're going to continue this. Oh, one tiny clarification. I do want to say I hold a particular redemption doctrine as well. So a technical point about the atonement. That's important to clarify. Yeah. We're in the same place. Um, guys, thank you for coming. Let me pray briefly and then run out the door and go and do something not as interesting as theology, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, do you want to lead us in prayer? Yeah. Thanks. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for friendly discussion as we're getting to, to edify each other and, and, and ask questions of each other. Thank you for uh, the respectful dialogue there. Thank you for the interest of these students, that they, they care about this stuff, that they, they want to consider deeply uh, the things of you, that they, they want to know more about you and how to, how to worship you and, and love you as, as you have commanded us to do so. So we thank you for this time. Thank you for the the meals that the students got to eat, uh, and we pray that you bless us in the rest of our day. In your son's name, amen. Amen.